0: Love Talk Radio. America's quintessential iconoclastic anomaly.
1: Wow! In talk radio, your host Joe Cristiano. America's libertarian voice, broadcasting from our studio in Tulsa, Oklahoma, to around the world. I'm your host, Joe Cristiano, and this is your antidote to Popular talk radio, folks. It's time for us to take back control of our government now. Before this bureaucratic, oversized, and self-serving federal government starves us of our property, our freedom, our rights, and our liberty. But to do this, we must shed conventional thinking regarding our political structure. We need to be revolutionaries in thought, dissidents in action. Only after we recognize what our government is doing to our freedom and our Constitution will we start taking it back, and this program is just about that. Today, we're pleased and honored to have Dr. Jeffrey Myron. He's a senior lecturer and director of undergraduate studies in the Department of Economics at Harvard University. He's also the Director of Economic Policy Studies at the Cato Institute. Uh, he's been the recipient of the uh, Olin Fellowship Award from the National Bureau of Economic Research. Today, we're going to touch on two subjects. If we have time, we'll at least we'll start with, the, with tax reform, one of my least favorite subjects, <laughs> because when I hear tax, I break out in a rash. Jeffrey, welcome back to Liberty Talk Radio.
0: Thanks very much. Nice to be here.
1: All right. thank you so much for being. It's really an honor to have you. You know, when when I hear tax reform, the first thing that comes to my my brain, which probably doesn't function very well these days, is the fact that we we had a we've had books written on the fair tax, and it just seems to me, not being a tax expert, that a fair tax is a a very um, uh, 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 Equalizing effect on the economy. It, it doesn't subjugate anyone. It doesn't penalize anyone. If I'm a billionaire and I buy a 400 million dollar yacht, I pay the tax on it. If you know, if if you're a guy like me, you know, you, you buy yourself a 200 dollar you know rowboat, you know, and then go out to the lake. I pay tax on that, and it's equal. Why can't they enact something simple like a, a, a fair tax? which would exempt things like food, for example, uh, so that you're, you're not penalizing disproportionately those people who are less you know, financially able to pay.
0: Let's so here. I think that to have a good discussion about tax policy, one actually has to start with spending policy. Ah, okay. If you have an economy that's not spending, the government is not spending very much uh, on average, then it doesn't need to raise very much tax revenue on average. And that makes it much easier to design some kind of a relatively simple tax system that everybody understands, that people comply with, and fill out the forms in a small amount of time. that doesn't generate big distortions and, and things like that. But if you have a big economy and people are trying to avoid the taxes, then there's all sorts of incentives for them to lobby Congress for loopholes and exemptions and credits and all that sort of stuff. There's lots of incentives for cheating. There's lots of potential for discouraging productive activity because of a high rate of taxation. So I think we really should be focused not necessarily so much on restructuring the tax system as reducing the amount of expenditure because then everything gets easier. The other thing I I would say is the structure by itself doesn't necessarily tell you whether you're going to like it or not like it. Someone could propose a tax that had the structure of a flat tax but say that the flat tax rate was 90%. I don't think you'd like that very much, <laughs> even if it was a flat tax. So there's some confusion in many discussions about whether we're talking about a low tax right. or a flat tax. And those are separable issues. What you and I both want is an economy with low expenditure and low taxes and probably with a flat tax. But a little bit of non-flatness isn't the end of the world.
1: hundred percent that the 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 emphasis should be on spending but we have a government that is totally out of out of control when it comes to spending um uh president trump you know talked about this he talked about the you know the uh, the bond the bond bubble the um Uh, Stock market, everything's in a bubble And now that he's president And and the bubble's getting bigger He says, oh look, look how great things are Everything's growing, you know And all they do is It it just just sort of reminds me of George Orwell 1984 Where, you know, one side would say one thing And change one syllable of one word And then say another thing And everything changed 180 degrees That's exactly what we're doing But we still have expenditures That are absolutely out of control one of the biggest expenditures is maintaining a worldwide um, military complex in just about every country on the globe that'll have us or we can force ourselves into. And this is costing billions of dollars, what, 17% of our economy or something like that, it just goes to the military. So they tell us, by the way, we never know off the balance sheet items and unreconciled items, which are in the trillions. And I guess no one will ever know what that number is. But to me, it just seems that if you have a corrupt government, you have what we have today. If you had a true, honest government and people who were truly serving the people and a president who represented the people and not represented the, 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 the military-industrial complex, the financial-industrial complex, whatever, we would have a totally different story. We wouldn't even be discussing this right now. What say you on that?
0: So I obviously uh Share your view that our attempts to be policemen for the world, to be invading or occupying countries around the globe, uh, to having as large a military as we have, is not effective and is not useful and is not necessarily promoting the safety or security of the United States. But I would emphasize slightly different, or not slightly, quite different aspects of our fiscal problems. Defense is somewhere around three and four percent of GDP whereas we also have Medicare, Medicaid, Social Security, which are similar, and those are the ones, Medicare in particular, is growing much faster than the economy will ever plausibly grow. So it's actually Medicare that's the huge problem, not per se or not as much uh, national defense and even not so much uh, Medicaid or Social Security. It's really Medicare. And when you say it that way, then I think it's, only fair to recognize that we shouldn't be saying it's the government, it's the government being corrupt. It's us. We all want to know that we're going to have high-quality health care when we retire later in life or even before we retire, but we don't necessarily want to pay for it ourselves. We want it to come from somewhere else, and it's the fact that the population will not vote for politicians who will slow the growth of Medicare that's the most fundamental fiscal problem. And so politicians are us. We elected them. They do what they think we want them to do on the whole because that's how they get reelected. So it's our problem for not accepting that we're not as rich as we think we are and we can't afford as generous a health care system as we have at the moment. Yeah,
1: well, I think I'll mention George. I never mentioned George Orwell in book 1984 twice in one broadcast, and I'm doing it right now. But, I mean, I, I think this is uh, relevant because if, I read that book maybe 40 years ago or so, but um, uh, I know I don't look that old, but I am. Uh, it, but basically what he says is, you know, they, every day they had, uh, in everyone's home, they had broadcast by the government. Now, of course, now we don't consider television as broadcasting by the government, but it is. And it's actually molded our minds, molded the way we think. And, and as a result, people actually now believe that a, in a true democratic society, the government provides health care for everyone. I mean, that we have been indoctrinated to believe that the free market system is unfair and only uh, uh, enriches those people of wealth. I mean, we got it all upside down and all backwards. Um, in the debate over health care, you never – Ever on Fox News, CNBC News, on any one of them, you ever hear these words, free market. It's like if someone mentions it, they lose their job. You never mention the free market. And if it is, it's in a very negative form, as if the free market will cause people to die and suffer for eternity. And... uh, We have, I guess, a country where I call zombies. That's why we have these zombie movies. They're metaphors for the way we think today. And the way we think is what we hear on television because that's the only thing we do. We don't read good books today. We watch movies, we watch television all day long. And George Orwell hit it right on the head as far as I'm concerned. So the problem we have is we have one of a mentality of people if we had the same situation today and we go back 100 years, you know, the population would think we're all nuts. I mean, everything that we're doing was crazy. It would be changed within, a, you know, within months. We'd have a whole new form of government. It would revert back to a more free market system. But today, we don't do that. We accept it. So how do we change anything when we have zombies voting?
0: So i have always a little... about thinking that people now are different than they used to be or that the degree of corruption or cynicism in government is nearly much different or anything like that. Um, So maybe it's worse, maybe it's not. But I would also point out that it's hard to change because I think a lot of people are basically acting in a way that makes sense from their own perspective. If you are currently elderly and getting Medicare, of course, you're going to be nervous about any proposal to cut back on Medicare. Any such proposal would probably exempt anyone who is already 65 and over, but any such discussion is still going to make you nervous. Now imagine that you're 55. Well, then you're definitely going to be more nervous because your uh, health benefits that you were counting on uh, are going to be cut and you don't have that many years in which to uh, try to save more for your own uh, health expenditure. Almost everybody has parents or grandparents who are on Medicare or you expect to hope to live long enough that you yourself will collect Medicare. So people aren't being irrational or corrupt. They're being totally rational by being very you know, nervous about the prospect of cutting back on that entitlement. And for the people who are currently in the population, currently voting, that probably makes sense because the crash, when we can't pay for it anymore, is going to be in 20, 40, maybe 80 years uh, when somebody else is going to have to bear the burden. Um, So I don't know how you change it, because given the system in place, people have a strong incentive to keep doing what we're doing since they're getting the benefits and someone else is going to pay the cost of
1: it. If you had a free market, I've I've had several doctors on my program who are also activists and have dropped out of the system, and I have uh, family and friends that are physicians and all good and well-meaning and it is amazing how they 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 are all saying the same thing. If we went back to, and especially those that testify in Washington, you know, if we went back to a free market system, because I, I did my own research on an operation that I had and went to a cash only hospital to see how much I would have paid. It came, I paid through Medicare and my insurance and whatever that I had because I retired from a major major oil company many years ago, and, and I still carry that insurance with me and they didn't realize I was going to live forever, you know, they're losing money on the deal. But that's another story. But what happened is they, uh, what I actually paid for the, um, my, my small deduction that I had to pay for all these operations that I've had, right, was about what I would have paid if we just had a cash-only system. And I verified this because I went to a cash-only hospital. I said, all right, I want this operation. How much would you charge me? Soup to nuts and it was about one-tenth of what I paid. So we say we can't afford um, health care when we get older. First of all, there's insurances for that. doesn't cover everything. You pay a little bit more as you get older. You've got to prepare for that. You've got to be responsible. And then when you have that, if you had a free market system, instead of an operation costing um, uh, uh, you know, like $100,000, it costs $10,000. Your insurance pays up some of it. You pay all the, the other portion, portion of it, and we get government out of it altogether. What's wrong with that?
0: Well, I first, I certainly agree with you that having government be much, much less involved uh, would be better, but I think we have to accept that it won't be better for everyone necessarily. That's a much tougher question. In particular in a free market for health insurance, people with pre-existing conditions, for example, are going to face much higher premiums than people without those conditions. Now, maybe you want to argue that that's just the way it goes, that's the way the cookie crumbles. You could say, look, some people are born with lots of athletic talent. Some people are born with artistic talent. Some people can you know, learn how to teach uh, physics or, and, or be great lawyers and others not, and that's just the way capitalism works. But that's certainly perceived these days as an extreme notion, at a minimum, even some libertarians are not, would not object to a, some level of social safety net that protects the most vulnerable from having to rely purely on their own uh, wits, because some people are unlucky and born with relatively little in the way of the skills that will lead them to succeed in the marketplace. And being born with a serious pre existing condition or acquiring a serious condition at some point in life uh, would be an example. So, you know, I think a calm discussion has to recognize that society is very unlikely to want to just let everyone rely on the uh, private charity system because there are fears it won't be adequate. And I think those fears are highly exaggerated. I think private charity would do an awful lot for people who are unfortunate. Mm. Um, and the pre-market would help bring down costs immensely, and that would help everybody. Um, but it is a somewhat more subtle conversation.
1: Yeah. Well, see, I'm several decades older than you. You know, Un- unfortunate for me. <laughs> <I'm sort> of, <laughs> but but I remember the times. You know, I'm, I used to uh, um, watch my grandfather. You know, I, I'm I'm going back 55 years ago. You know, I used to have to sort of sit with him when he was older and fragile and whatever. And I used to go out and buy cigars for him or whatever. But one thing that we had at that time that I don't see today at all is that um, I recall my mother saying, eat your spinach. You know what I mean? Eat your spinach. You know, it's good for you. Eat this. It's good for you. Don't eat that. That's no good for you. Today, parents don't do that. We're going to McDonald's. Eat all the crap you want. You know, don't worry because if you get sick, I know somebody who is a um, uh, a, a a professor of economics at Hartford. He's going to help pay for it. And that—that's that a judging. little
0: extreme. I mean, I, I certainly you know, I was told to eat my spinach. I told my kids to eat my spinach. We see advertisements on TV for healthy food all the time. We see. Uh, local governments trying to impose, put healthy food into school cafeterias. So I think there have always been people who focused on trying to be healthy and people who didn't nearly as much. Um, so I don't quite see people's attitudes or behavior as changing nearly so much as you do. I think we're just kind of remembering the things which fit with that view. But there have always been parents who were responsible and parents who aren't, and there always will be.
1: Look at the people today. I mean, people. I mean, you get just any crowd of people in any environment. I mean, they don't even look healthy. I mean, they're overweight. You know, they're drinking a Slurpee. Um, No,
0: I I can't disagree with you more. But what if you go to the gym? You can also, you know, the the same right down the street from McDonald's. There is a many. you know, lots and lots of locations. There's a gym, and there's a bunch of people in there who are on the treadmills or the weight machines or whatever, and they're trying to be healthy. There are people who belong to all sorts of the jazzercise or you know, know other you. sorts of exercise classes. Uh, there are people out jogging every morning, and you walk around your neighborhood. So I think you're painting with a little too broad a brush. Yes, there's heterogeneity. Some people pay attention to their health, and some people don't, but I'm not sure it's really any different. And we have a lot of modern medicine. That's helped a lot of people be a lot healthier. Life expectancy has certainly gone up. If we were really, well as, you know, crazy and irresponsible as you're portraying, it's not obvious why life expectancy would keep increasing.
1: I, I can't tell you how many people I know that even work in this studio who are young. I mean, there are 40 years or more, older, younger than I am, and their health is horrible. If I see, look at the way they eat, it's abominable. I mean, they come in there with these 44-ounce, uh, you know, Cokes and whatever. You know, their sugar junkies and whatever. We, we didn't have that. Now, yeah, we didn't have gyms back then because we didn't eat it because we worked hard. You know, everyone worked. You know, everyone, did, everyone was active. We used to play ball in 124th Street Park in East Harlem, New York. You know, I'm a Harlem
0: kid, you know. So for, but weren't people eating a lot more saturated fat? Weren't they putting a lot more salt on their food? You know, weren't they, didn't they have less access to fresh fruits and vegetables? I mean, I'm not, I'm not sure that it's really changed in the direction that you're saying. It's certainly, it's not for everybody. There's a lot of variety then and now and presumably in the future as to how people behave about their health. I, I
1: guess, I guess we're at an impasse because I, I, I think we ate, at least in my family and the people I know, we ate a lot better. We didn't have the money to go out and buy all this junk anyway. We we ate at home. And did anyone in your
0: family smoke?
1: Yes, my father cigarette? did. Yeah, my father did smoke and okay, he died. Okay, so that's and a dramatic because,
0: change in the right. health of the population. I agree. Far, far lower percentage of the population smokes. Well, that's almost certainly a major contributor to increasing life expectancy. So I think we've gotten healthier in lots and lots of ways. It may be some people have gotten less healthy in other ways. That's not
1: I want to see the government out altogether on health care. I want to see him out of my life altogether. I can handle it myself. And we should have the family now responsible for their children and not the government, and not, especially not television or your iPhone. Okay? Can we end it on that?
0: Fine with me. <laughs> totally fine with me. I just don't want to, I don't want to overstate or you know, assert there have been changes in things that maybe haven't changed. We want to focus on the arguments that are going to persuade people. That's an issue you posed to me a few minutes ago, is how do we convince people yeah. that having more of a free market in healthcare and less government would be beneficial? And that's really tough because in the short term, lots of people are actually going to be worse off if the government subsidizes healthcare less and subsidizes health insurance less. It's only over time if the government gets out or gets out partially, but the market will be able to innovate and be able to provide various services less expensively, and everybody will benefit from that. Um, and as you alluded to in earlier comments, all of this government intervention in health insurance and, and more broadly has perpetuated the view that healthcare is a right, as opposed to the view that healthcare is That's a right. service or a right. commodity like anything else. Right. And the market will do a good job of providing services and commodities that for which there is demand. Once you say that it's a right, then it sounds like, well, if it's a right, then everybody should have as much of it as they want all the time, and that's impossible. I actually just read a really interesting description of it. Talked about the food market and how you can go into a grocery store and there's all these things you can buy and capitalism is so amazing and allowing you to buy expensive steak and inexpensive hamburger and billions of different uh, Mm -hmm. products. Now imagine that there was a grocery store where there were no prices on any of the items. And people still got it, went in there and shopped. And all they did was they paid $1,000 a month for the right to go in and purchase as much as they wanted. And when they get to the cashier, they just pay a $15 copay, yeah. no matter how much they bought or what they bought. Well, then, of course, it would be insane because nobody would bother buying a hamburger. Everybody would buy the steak. Nobody would buy the generic version of the Cheerios. Everybody would buy the brand. And you have expenditure growing without bounds. But that is the current view of how we should do health, because we should give everybody or at free access to state-of-the-art health care in every dimension, uh, that will never get any reasonable balance between cost and benefit, and that will destroy the health care
1: system. Well, th- would you not agree, then, if, if, if something is provided by the government, people are less, we don't know how much, but less likely to be responsible for themselves saying, well, you know, I can, I can smoke or I can do this, I can do that, because health care is Basically, I'm going to pay for the health care. If I'm healthy or if I'm not healthy, it doesn't make any monetary. It makes no difference. So there's le- not no incentive, but less of an incentive to take care of yourself. If I knew I got sick, I had to pay the whole thing. I may be more mindful of the way that I eat, the, my my lifestyle. Would you not agree with yeah. that?
0: Oh no, I agree with that for sure. I think that health care, like everything else, well, demand for that responds to price. Different things respond right. to different degrees, but I certainly think it will in a vast, in a huge fraction of the relevant situations. Now, tenants would come back and say, wait, you know, you're saying that if I'm in a car accident and I'm bleeding out, I'm going to have to negotiate with the ambulance that shows up how much I'm willing to pay uh, to get taken to a hospital and get treated. You know, that's crazy. You can't use the price system in those settings. Right. Well, maybe, but there's so many other aspects of health care where people do have time to get the information, they do have time to make uh, com- to comparison shop, They do have time to think about whether you want the expensive surgery or the less expensive uh, treatment for medication, or you just want watchful waiting, which is even less expensive. Yeah. Whether you need to go to a fancy Schmancy specialist or you're fine just going to your less expensive general practitioner, there's many ways in which the demand for healthcare can adjust to the prices, and it would do so right. if people were paying the prices. But when you subsidize something, and particularly when you tell people right. they don't pay any price, they're going to demand more of it. That's right. for yeah. sure what's happening. Right.
1: Well, next time you want to have a debate on this, I'd like to come up to your school, okay, in your classroom, and we'll debate it in front of your students. Have some fun with it. <laughs> okay.
0: How about that, okay? I'm going to come
1: up there for charge. I think this will be too much fun. All right, now, one subject which – I, I see I'm, I'm the loneliest guy on the planet, by the way, when it comes to immigration. I don't know if uh-huh. anyone, and very few people, uh, if anyone, you know, who doesn't grasp the same concept that, that I have uh, about open borders. I mean, every everyone is so indoctrinated with, you know, you have to have walls and borders and, and everyone checked out and all that. And... I, to me, that's all lunacy. It was never that way. If it was that way, w- we never got permission from the, um, from the tribes um, in, 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 in this part of the country to say, okay, you can come into our uh, land. We just killed the warriors, subjugated the children, and raped the woman and we took the land. You know, I mean, it was very simple. And, and now all of a sudden, we're holier than thou, you know, where everything's got to be done properly and we have to protect ourselves. Is is there something? What am I missing about this open borders concept
0: that I'm? Well, I i do not think you. I don't personally don't think you're missing anything. I agree. I would like to live in a country that has open borders, but um, again, some of the opposition to that is understandable in the sense that if you are a low skill or uh, unskilled easy to think that more immigration will mean more competition for the kinds of jobs that you're likely to get and it might affect your ability to get a job or your wage. Now, the evidence doesn't necessarily suggest that there is such a big effect of immigration on um, the wages or the job prospects of the existing natives, but it's certainly an understandable concern. It might be there to it might be there to some extent. But I think there are another aspect which is people who are sort of afraid of the other. They're afraid of people who might not be like them, who have different religions, of different uh, ethnicities, different color, and so on. And so they don't want the borders to be open because they think it will lead to a lot of people who are not like them, and that makes right. them nervous. Right. Um, and then the more, most extreme is the fear that opening the borders will allow um, uh, terrorists or other people who want to actively do harm uh, to the existing population To enter and blow up uh, buildings with planes and things like that. Now, on that point, I think that in particular we have it exactly backwards. I think the more we try to restrict people to come in, the less hospitable we are to people who want to migrate here from around the world, the more we anger them, uh, and the more likely it is that they're going to want to commit terrorist actions against us. Mm -hmm. In particular, the more we invade their countries and disrupt things and create refugees and destroy, uh, kill people and destroy buildings and all that, that's really a good way to get people not to like us. And so that's, it's not exactly immigration policy, but it relates to it directly. As long as we keep interfering in the Middle East, there's going to be some hostility to us in the Middle East. The solution is get out of the Middle East and open our borders.
1: You know, I, I... I'm glad you're saying that because I, sometimes I think I'm a majority of one in this subject. <laughs> two. I'm... There's two of us. <laughs> okay, there's two of us, right? But it, 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 to me it's so simple. I went to a business meeting and someone brought this up and I said, well, they, they talked about terrorism or something like that, some related subject that we're just talking about. And I said, well, maybe if we didn't invade their country, you know, kill so many innocent people and bombs from drones and Um, Built military fortresses, you know, in the middle of their major cities and patrol their areas and always accidentally killed a few innocent people, but who's counting? Maybe they wouldn't be so mad. And they get angry. They go, no, but we're the world's policemen. You know, we're there to protect the people. I go, well, why don't we just come home and obey the Constitution? I mean, we were blessed with two bodies of water. One called the Pacific Ocean, the other called the Atlantic Ocean. We didn't have to be involved in anything. We could do our own thing, fair trade with everyone around the world. Why would someone say, hey, Abdul, how about you and I save up our money, fly over to America, and blow the brains out of a few people? I mean, if they didn't know who we are, we were just far away, and we fair traded with them, and we were good to them. I mean, where, where's the logic? And they say, oh, no, they would do that because they're fanatics. Well, if they're fanatics, what are we going around the world, the only country in the world that has bases all over the world, controlling nearly every major population? We're not fanatics. They cannot see it that way. And I... I, Yeah, I agree. um,
0: Yeah, I don't have a good explanation, but I agree with your characterization. Most people don't see it the way you and I do. And I think it's, it's it's unfortunate because we're making ourselves much worse off. We're not successfully policing the rest of the world. We're generating, in many cases, further disruption, further animosity, loss of life, uh, and so on. And we're giving people a good reason not to like us rather than just saying we're happy to trade with you, we're happy to have you immigrate to our country. That's the way in which we want to interact, peaceful, voluntary, um, and uh, if you want to, great. If you don't want to, that's fine, too. Mm.
1: Well, it, it's sort of interesting that on 9-11, you know, a lot of blame or, or suspicion went to Saddam Hussein, you know, the guy that, by the way, we put in office, you know, uh, in, in Iraq. And and yet we had to invade them, and the estimates vary from 1 million to 2 million people died, of which about 500,000 were children, you know. But it, that, that's all collateral damage. You really don't count that, you know. And yet Saudi Arabia, where, what, 9 of the 12 11 um, um, people involved, I forgot the exact number, came from Saudi Arabia, and we're supplying arms to Saudi Arabia. I tell you, this this government drives me nuts. I mean, I I cannot even tolerate listening to any senator, uh, congressman, or anyone affiliated with the government because every time they open their mouths, I mean, I start screaming at a TV set, and my wife (laughs) beats me over the head. You know, and she's right. She said, "We you stop it so I don't watch it? And I, I watch programs like Love and Hip Hop and, uh, you know, um, uh, Street Outlaws because I'm an old drag racer guy. And I, I avoid all sorts of uh, commentary regarding politics on television these days. But why can't – and the people that I speak with, at these they are attorneys, um, they're attorneys, uh, they're marketing consultants. They have higher educations, a lot higher than mine, you know. And book-wise, they're a lot smarter than I am. And when it comes to issues regarding our government, they just appear to be, like George Iowa said, you know, we'll convince you, you know, we'll indoctrinate you, and you will do what we say. It's exactly what they sound like.
0: I agree. (laughs) I'm not sure what else to say.
1: (laughs) And I I don't know what we do, about how do we get out of this malaise? It looks like it's not going anywhere.
0: I guess the only thing I would say, similar to some other comments, is that I think if we were discussing the state of the world in 1975 or 40 or 1910, we would be able to think of a whole set of reasons why we thought it was about to all just crash and it was so bad that we were almost ready to give up in despair. And yet despite all the crazy things our government and other governments have done, For centuries, we've managed to muddle around, and in the United States and a lot of other countries around the world, people are, in a lot of ways, pretty free to live their lives the way they want. Yes, there's tons of regulation. Yes, taxes may well be too high, and so on. But you can live in the part of the country you want to live in. You can marry whom you want, practice the religion you want, uh, go into the occupation you want, and so on and so forth. So... Think, compare us to 500 years ago or thousand years ago, or even 150 years ago when the US. brought up slavery, we're a pretty free country in the world for the most part, fairly yes and, yes <laughs> so you know. it's fairly I wouldn't I wouldn't be quite as, as, I wouldn't be quite as pessimistic um, as you are. I absolutely share your view that we want to argue against and push back against the expanse, further expansion of government and indeed pull back a huge amount of existing government. But we're not living in Stalinist Russia. We're not living in communist China. We're not living in, you know, the year 1000 medieval village with a king or, or, or duke or something that can kind of impose arbitrary taxation chop off our heads at a moment's notice. We live in a basically free, open capitalist country.
1: I, I agree. I, I don't disagree. Where, where I'm having my problem is a relative problem. At one time, 20 years ago, when it came to the Business Freedom Index, you know, that's compiled every year as to where is the best place to run a business, the freedom to run your business, we were number one 30 years ago. Guess what? Out of the top 31 industrialized countries in the world, we now rank 28. All I'm saying is that we're going downhill and we're becoming acclimatized to it, so to speak. So it sounds like we're still the fr- – I still hear people say we're the freest country in the world. No, we're not. The freest country in the world is Hong Kong, of course. It's part of China. And they can't well, – That was New Zealand, well, New Zealand, actually. Yeah, New Zealand is, was way up there, you know. And according to the Personal Freedom Index, Hong Kong comes out number one. And we're now number 14. I, I'm not saying we're the worst in the world. But we certainly lose ground every single time it comes up. You know, the Cato Institute puts out one, the Heritage Foundation, and there's several others who put out indexes of of different aspects of our freedom. We ain't doing any better, guy. Let me tell you, we keep on thinking, and no one seems to be alarmed. That at what point are we going to say, you know, we have a corrupt government? We have politically corrupt government. You know, we have laws that make no sense whatsoever. We have lost a good part of our freedom. And we have to turn it around. And the only thing we get from these clowns, you know, criminal clowns in Washington, is more regulation to protect us, which exasperates the situation even further.
0: I agree that things uh, at one level continue to go in the wrong direction from our perspective, more regulation and so on. At the same time, technology keeps marching forward, and our ability to avoid the effects of that regulation tend to get better and better. You can pick up your business and move it overseas a lot more easily than you could over hundred years ago. So if your government is taxing too heavily, regulating too heavily, heavily go somewhere else. Um, we can get information from all over the world. People who live in somewhat oppressive economies can still use their iPhones to get news from around the world and realize that what the government is telling them is the whole story and so on. So that's just another way of saying maybe we should be not quite so pessimistic uh, it doesn't mean we should stop pushing back against all the things that you're concerned about or that I'm concerned about. But um, we, may, we I, I fear that when we sound as though we think we're at Armageddon, we're at the end, and it's just so catastrophic, people who don't agree with us think we're crazy and stop listening. And So a somewhat more be- nuanced assessment, which I also think is accurate. Lots of th- good things are happening. I mean, Changes in drug policy in the U.S. have gone in the right direction okay, in the past couple of decades. Change in marriage policy for uh, for gay couples have gone in the right direction. Okay. Despite restrictions on immigration, people can move so much more easily now that they still have more ability uh, to avoid oppressive governments around the world. So there are a lot of good things happening, too. Um, but that should, we should keep in mind when we as we push back against the bad things.
1: But every time something good happens, the government comes in, to sort of neutralize the the benefit. For example, we have uh, automation, but sometimes automation results in fewer people working. Fewer people working, uh, then you have a larger population of unemployed. Then the government comes in with more government programs, you know, to sustain these people, you know, while they're unemployed instead of people going out there and did what my father did when he came over here from... Before World War in Europe and War Tour in Europe, he came over here, not speaking the language, having not a penny in his pocket, no skills whatsoever, and worked at a piano, a Polish piano factory, and they beat the hell out of him every night. you know i mean we don 't have that, that that work ethic anymore we wait. We wait for the government, and what this does, this technology does, it makes us more efficient, more productive, but then it increases the cost of government because the government is giving more benefits to those people who have been displaced by it instead of saying, hey, guy, you know, you went to school. Did you learn anything? No. Now you suffer.
0: Well, I totally agree that the concern over automation and robots seems incredibly misplaced to me. We've had automation and things that are like robots uh, going on for decades and decades. And throughout that period, lots of people have worried that that would lead to this mass army of the unemployed who would be displaced by the new technology. Um, and yet, it hasn't happened. The new technologies have first made life better for everybody because they've made all sorts of products cheaper. Thinking about a washing machine, or a dryer as a kind of a robot, that allows people to spend a lot less time having clean clothes and dry clothes. Um, and partially because these things got cheaper from automation, more people could afford them, and that created more demand for the people who helped make them, distribute them, sell them, service them, and so on. So, this concern over the technological progress, I think, is completely unfounded in history and is incredibly implausible that it's going to lead to anything. Uh, horrific, and it clearly has hugely beneficial effects everyone. Mm. So you're right that a lot of the commentary on this I find to be misguided and unconvincing, but just remember that for side is, it's happening. The government has not stopped it. It's mainly just continuing to go on, and yes, you may object that we're paying unemployment insurance to some of the people who are, at least temporarily, in some cases, longer term lose their jobs from the automation, but you also might think maybe that's the political price we have to pay to get everybody to accept that the automation is going to displace some people and some people for, you know, not just for six months or a year, but remember, if their job, their skill becomes obsolete. Okay, then they're never going to get reemployed depending mm-hmm. on how old they are. And what. You know, think about the poor horse. Look what the car did to the demand for horses. Yeah. <laughs> so they're permanently unemployed. But everybody else is better off because they allowed the car and the government didn't stop that. And actually, the horses in some ways are better off. You can hang out in the pastures instead of having to uh, (laughs) pull these heavy carts and and wagons and things like that.
1: You know, the example that I give, I think, whenever they bring this argument about automation, they can't find jobs. I go, well, let's go back a few years. When they invented the wheel, before the wheel was invented, it, it took maybe 40 people to move a stone. And then one guy right. said, "Hey, Bobby, hey, look at these round things. They roll. Why don't we put the stone in between these two wheels with a with a bar, and we can just push it instead of 40 guys moving the stone. We just need two." Well, I said, "You know, those 38, those 30, 42 guys that are unemployed, they're still unemployed to this day. You know, I but I use it as as a metaphor more than anything else." Well, it's very true, but today, my concern is that our mentality is we have lost the work ethic that we had 100 years ago where we said, if you don't have a job, you take what you can get, forget about how much it pays, you take care of your family, you work day and night, you learn a skill. Then you try to improve yourself, your lot in life, and you move forward. Instead of looking to the government, the first thing we do is we apply for the 14 programs that the government has for us, and we sit home, eat jujubes and, um, and uh, Slurpees, and, and watch television all day.
0: So I agree with you that we have too many programs, and they're more generous than makes sense to me, but I still think that a very, very large fraction of the population is exactly what you described. They want to work hard, they want to uh, have a career. About whether the capitalist spirit has been broken or anything like that, we don't have it perfect, but I, I do think it's still we're, we're still doing okay. All
1: right, Jeffrey, I think I've aggravated you enough. Not at all. Oh,
0: <laughs> a lot of fun. <laughs> I, think, I, I
1: think at this point you probably need to take about four aspirins to get over this, this uh, dialogue. You know, but it, it, we're about at our w- witching hour. Uh, uh, I, I want to thank you so much for being on our program. I hope you take no offense by my by espousing what I'm saying and stuff like that, and nothing personal but I feel very as you know as you probably sense, I feel very strongly about this, and I'm not disagreeing with you by the way. I'm just giving you a point of view, and I'm just fervent about it, but I'd like to give you the last couple of minutes just to wrap things up okay
0: um, I, okay, I guess we're to wrap things up i i I would like to talk about Trump for a second, which sure, frustrates please, me please do most at the moment is that. Our president, I think, has fewer libertarian instincts than any president I'm aware of, that I can remember any detail. I'm deeply disturbed that he doesn't think about freedom, about the virtues of markets, about individual liberty, in any context, either the sort of liberal favorite liberties or the conservative favorite liberties. So if when we're going to be really pessimistic about something, my pessimism does focus on the fact that I don't think President Trump wants to think about policy, debate policy, listen to the voters—any of the things that I would like a leader to do—and the authoritarianism and the risk that there are going to be attempts to consolidate power in the presidency—that's what scares me about the United yes, States. I, I agree 100%.
1: Yeah, he—he he scares me because there's this there's, there's no. Um, moral or physico- philosophical foundation from which he operates. It's all shotgun, and you have no idea where he's going, and you, from, from what I've experienced and what I understand, and sometimes I don't understand the full context of what is going on because I'm not privy to some of this information, it seems that he's making off-the-world decisions that just don't sound very free-market, uh, don't sound very freedom-like, um, are very restrictive, And and quite frankly, very harmful in many ways that people are not talking about. And he sort of buzzed me up. Well, I want to thank you very much for being on our program. Um, If there's ever a time that you are in need of a lunatic to give a talk at uh, Harvard, you know, please feel free to give me a call. I'll come up and be (laughs) more than happy to do this,
0: and we'll Uh, have some fun, okay? uh, That's a great offer. Thank you very much. Thank
1: you, and I hope you will accept that invitation to return at a later date.
0: Of course. Okay, thank project. you. Thank right. you. so much. You. Right, Bye-bye, Take care. Bye-bye Folks,
1: this is the end of today's broadcast. We'd like to thank our sponsors for the financial support, and we'd like to thank you for listening in. You can further the cause of liberty by recommending this program to your friends and let us hear from you. Our email address is comment at libertytalkradio.com. Remember, as my wife would say, you're either allowing your liberties to be taken away or you're striving to protect them. Unfortunately, there is no middle ground. Until next time, this is Joe Cristiano. You've been listening to Liberty Talk Radio. Stay well. Stay tuned.